0: When you scaled, uh, your company scaled from like 900 to 1500 doors. You, you, we talked a little bit about before the call where, hey, at some point you actually said, hey, let's pause, let's get our stuff together and mm-hmm. get all of our stuff in order so that we can scale even better. Can you help share that story with folks? Like, what, what was going on at the time when you guys were growing so much and what sort of issues were you guys running into?
1: Yeah. So, um, it, and this was not an easy decision, too. Like, it took about three or four months of us just for lack of a better word, honestly pleading with the fund managers of just please stop buying houses. You know, they just, they kept buying. So to, to explain a little bit of the context. So funds, again, one of the reasons why funds are are not the best reason for everybody is once you take the capital, you now have a ticking time bomb or not Mm -hmm. taking a clock is now running against you. The second you take that money, you are, you now have to deploy that because you know, I'm trying to make this really generalized without making this a thing all that fun. So, like, there's a couple of different reasons why, but basically, as soon as you take that money, you have to either deploy it as rapidly as possible, or if you do take it actually into your bank account, you know, you're going to owe fees on that money and you're owe a return on that investment money, whether you do did, did anything with it or not. Mm-hmm. So, they were under a very unique set of cir- circumstances where they have to be buying houses, have to be getting that money out into real estate, acquiring your assets, getting things fixed up, getting rent coming in you know, they have to move very, very fast. And that's one of the reasons why I talk about it, I say it's not for everybody. Like it is a very mm-hmm. high pressure thing, you know? And then plus also you're dealing with people's money. Like they were going after as well, institutional money. So that's pension funds, that's teachers union, that's, that's insurance companies. That's like, this is people's retirement you're dealing with, you know? And that is a whole different level of pressure and stress and, and an entirely different world. So he was under a tremendous amount of pressure. And I think it's very important to, to open this because it's like, you have to see it from his perspective before we can get into why it was so difficult. Because uh, everything always has two sides. So he was under a tremendous amount of pressure to, you know, he had your average, you could be somebody who's listening to this, you know, whether you knew it or not, your grandma or your mom or your friend's retirement may have been reliant on this guy performing and this guy buying houses in a timely fashion. So anyway, um, so basically we, it took us several months because let's say it's June 4th right now. Okay, let's say he bought 100 houses on May 1st. There are varying conditions and let's say, you know, 80 of them needed rehab and we were only to get 50 of them done in the month of May. Well, it's now June 1st. Austin, here you go. Here's another 100 here's another, here's another houses. I know you still have 30 houses you haven't finished renovating and aren't tenanted and aren't ready, but you got another 100. So now we're starting going to June with 130 houses and let's say 100 of them need rehab and then we're only to get, again, now we're only to get, able to get 50 of them done. Now we're going into July with 60 houses needing renovation and another hundred on top of that. So it just it basically, it dug us such a hole that it was really, really hard to get out of. And as well, the other challenge we were going through really too is that so at first, you know, as he was the fund manager, he was doing a very prudent thing where he had a couple of different property managers. He had like three he started out with. I came on, he was basically in the transition of, of cutting it down to two. And then, you know, six months later, he basically then at the end of it, we were the only property manager. So, we were basically getting properties from other property management companies who, who weren't doing their job for, or probably were drowning just as much as we were and were having trouble keeping up with it all. So, we were getting all of their properties. He was buying more properties on top of that. And then, you know, just the normal turnover of properties. So, it was just a, a tsunami of <laughs> looking back, it's like, holy moly. Um, man, this was a lot. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, it was wow. just, it was a very, It was basically that. It was just we were getting more properties than we could possibly fix up. And we were working with probably a dozen different contractors.
0: Okay. Welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate uh, Investing. Today, we got Matt Semigran from Emerald Century. Uh, Matt's got a lot of experience with property management, having served as the CEO of a property management company. We are so excited to have him on today because one, he's going to be able to shed some light on what it takes to s- scale a property manager company. But more importantly, he knows when to recognize, hey, when do you actually need to pause and get your systems and structure and processes in place before you keep on scaling. And I think that's going to be a very, very important lesson for all of our listeners to listen to today and really pay attention to hearing no about his story. They're so they're Matt, they're yeah, exactly. Matt, welcome to the show, man. So just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got uh, involved in real estate investing, man.
1: Well, Kent, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, became highly recommended by a, a, a friend and who's is becoming a partner of mine, Richard. Um, so, if you guys haven't listened to that episode, find that in somewhere in, in, in the show notes or hit up. Hey, Kent, where's that episode of Richard? Matt said I could listen to it. He's probably a, a bigger wealth of knowledge than I am. Um, but yeah, so I, I have a very unique background and kind of how I got into real estate. So, um, as I'm sure as many listeners out there, I've been reading Bigger Pockets for. So, for context, I'm 29. Um, so, I've been reading Bigger Pockets for the better part of a decade at this point. Um, and if you don't know what Bigger Pockets is, hit up Kent. He'll probably tell you his ba- favorite, favorite resources, the best articles to get started, and you are doing yourself a huge disservice. Um, and then also just make sure you listen to this too, this podcast here. Um, so, basically, I, got, I set myself to a boarding school when I was 16, um, you know, and kind of realized college route wasn't for me. So, I ended up becoming an international art dealer and a jet broker, and then kind of was like, all right, well, you know, I, I really want to get to the entrepreneurial route. Um, and so eventually started a house cleaning company with my girlfriend. And so we kind of then scaled into janitorial, we did an M and a transaction. We bought a carpet cleaning company and, and things like that. So I came from a boring, what I call boring, but profitable businesses. You know, these aren't the sexy businesses. This is not, we're not getting back by it. We're not going to the Y Combinator, we're not getting backed by a VC fund or anything like that, as much as I'd love to be and in a previous life, I would have loved to, um, but it's just, it's not the, the way my life should played out. Um, so all along I'm, I'm reading bigger pockets. I'm like, I want to get in real estate. I want to get real estate. I want to get in real estate. I don't know contractors. I don't have relationships. I don't know how to do all these things. And all my money and time was being consumed by scaling my own companies. So, um, anyway, and then eventually we had a, we had me and a partner, um, invest into a house cleaning company. The investment kind of went sideways on us. And when, it all, after it all kind of, you know, shook out, I was like, Hey man, I, I talked to my partner. His name was awesome. I was like, hey, man, I'm really sorry that happened. You know, I, I know you bought this You bought this property management company. You know, let, let me come consult for you for a little bit. And just so I, I kind of I spent probably about a month or two just kind of showing up every day, helping him kind of get his, his, his head around everything for free. It was just as a favorite him because I had a, an investment went bad. Um, and this was his first real company. I mean, he had he'd been in property management for years and years and kind of dove right in and jumped in the deep end and bought, acquired a small company with like 400 doors. And wow. the time I actually started consulting for him, he was at nine hundred doors, and eventually that role transitioned into me becoming the COO of, COO of that company. Wow! And in that time frame, it was about a little over a year. Let's say about a year and a half, we went from about nine hundred doors under management to fifteen hundred. And this wow. was purely single family. So you, for anybody who knows multifamily, it's like, oh, that's not a big deal. Just you know, you acquire two or three apartment buildings, you hire four or five people, and you're good to go. You know, that was not the way we rent. Um, and it was largely backed by a real estate fund. Um, so that gave me a very unique perspective. And in the, when I was doing this, um, you know, because we were growing so rapidly, I, was, I didn't have any construction management experience. So I, I, I tried to stay out of that part. I tried to stay more of like hiring and infrastructure, scaling, mm-hmm. and just, you know, uh, HR and things like that, uh, things that I actually knew and that could translate over into because it's applicable to any business. Um, but you know, as time went on, like we were just going so rapidly, and it was pretty much all my partners, um, and to do everything. So I, I started getting a little bit into the construction management. I started meeting the contractors and kind of really got to feel out who everybody was and which were the good ones, which were the bad ones, and you know all this other fun stuff. So uh, eventually, that fund brought their management in house, and then my partner and I have been talking for months and months about wanting to start getting become a real estate investors ourselves. So like, all right, this is my opportunity. So he found the deal. I found a found a lender, and we dove into it. And then uh, this was November of 2021. Sorry, 2022. So like six, seven Mm -hmm. months ago. Um, And then you know after that, one couple months, couple weeks later, we closed on our second flip. And then about a month or two later, after that, we closed on our third flip. So we had three flips running. Um, unfortunately, they would have been a little bit faster but we had title issues which is a whole fun thing but um, <laughs> so for any new investors out there you, you, just because you get a property in our contract be prepared for something to go wrong with title like that's just I think that's just the easiest way to describe it we can get into the details later anyway so we ended up selling two of the properties and we're wrapping up the third flip right now and I again I have a very unique perspective even on getting into the real estate world. I'm not the most experienced operator or the real estate investor out there. Mm -hmm. Um, But now here I am, I am in the process of finalizing a real estate fund. So that's what Emerald Century Capital is. Uh, We are a real estate fund. We're going to, we're trying to raise about a million dollars for our first fund. And, you know, we're basically going to apply the strategy. And we have a pretty unique way of doing it. Uh, One of the partners I'm bringing on for that and um, has introduced a very creative strategy for us about how we do the real estate. And, you know, fund two could be 10 million and just kind of it, it kind of goes from there. So um, I'm sure a lot of the listeners are like, well, how are you going to do that? So really my, I guess my, my first nugget of wisdom every for everybody is surround yourself with people who are smarter and more experienced than you are mm-hmm. and figure out what you're good at and how you could add value to them and then build a, build, so you build a team. That, that, that's my biggest, that's how I've done everything I've ever done is I just talk to random people and I build teams and get them excited about what I'm doing and try to recruit them for my projects. So, anyway, wow, that was man, a really long I mean, that- background. It's it's so it it it's has so many twists and turns, and it's not just like, oh, you know, I had a job and I bought a property and I just scaled from there. Like almost every single person I've ever listened to is like, I always wanted to. I wanted to buy my first property. I just I just bit the bullet. I jumped in. I took action, and then they just scaled. It was like, no, I read Bigger Pockets for a decade. I bought I don't know how many books and courses and different things learning about real estate, <laughs> and just never did because time and it was I didn't have the time or the money. It was just you know. There's a very different way to get into it. So anyway. Yeah.
0: But you, you I mean, there's a lot of things to unpack here, right? And let me take it step by step. Right, You had a cleaning company. You also had an investment that went sideways, but then you, you carried that experience forward, Matt, and you shared with folks like, Hey, I know this went sideways, but let me come in here and help you do some consulting. I want to make things right. That instantly gives you credibility and helps with your reputation of if someone were to go like hey let me go find out who this matt guy is you cannot bring up your old investor and say like hey look this is what happened it didn't go well but this is what matt did to kind of make up for it boom mm-hmm. that's one thing people forget that these every single step of your journey matters for wherever you're going and how you Absolutely. treat other people and how you maintain your reputation that is so so important so let me take the first part you said you grew from 900 doors to 1500 doors all single family which sounds crazy uh, but it was backed family, by a real affordable. estate fund. Affordable. Yes. But it was backed by a real estate fund. Help the listeners understand what does that term mean, backed by a real estate fund. Is it like a big hedge fund that's just buying single families and
1: turning them into rentals? Like, what does that mean, Matt? Yeah, essentially. Um, well, so it was, I'd say it's about 80% that. Um, mm. So at least for our company, we had basically, you know, the fund and we had what we called our, our private investors. So they were just like you and I, we own one, two, four, a dozen houses. Um, so that was a group pocket of the company of the investors. And that was probably, that probably made up in the end, about three, 400 of the doors. And I'd say the other 1100 was by the fund. So what it really, so for the listeners out there, what a fund really just boils down to is like, it's basically just go to a lot of different people who say, Hey, I, I'm an experienced real estate investor, you know, invest a bunch of money with me and I'm basically going to go buy real estate and do something with it, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and that's, that's, that's in its broadest strokes. And this can be applied to every single asset class out there. It's most common commercial self storage apartments, things like that, because, you know, a one apartment deal can you can can require 50 million Mm -hmm. dollars to buy that one building. So that's where it's most common. Uh, But this gentleman, he had discovered that there was a major affordable housing crisis. So he had go he had a lot of experience on Wall Street and had actually done had a fund previously in self storage. So he was like, well, hey you know for this next phone I I want to help the community. So he raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Wow. Um and was basically going in and buying up not so nice houses in the rougher parts of town in CD mm-hmm. class neighborhoods. He was going in and buying up these distressed homes and saying, "Look, we're not just going to rock, just going to put some paint on this and call it good." You know, his mission really was to just like basically be the anti-slumlord. And it was really mm-hmm. awesome. And so he would, you know, and but it was a double-edged sword because he was buying because he raised so much money, he was having to buy so many houses just to deploy mm. it all, and a lot of the houses he was buying, you know, they the previous owners had not taken care of these for a very long time. So the construction projects were were very large and required us to have a lot of real estate investors. So, um, but yeah, so I think that's in the simplest form. That's really what it was.
0: And I think for the listeners that are out there right now, I think some of the more common questions we get from newer investors like hey how do i structure this how do i raise capital how do i partner with somebody how do i make it fair people always ask about the the sense like how do i structure it and part of that comes from like hey do i create an llc for every single property blah 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 and i mean i've ran into that issue myself where i'm like hey it it's not really scalable if i try to create one llc to buy every every single property just the administrative fees might kill you so matt i think that's why you're bringing up the fun idea and it seems like that's why you're stepping into this world is because it makes the pooling of the cash gives you way more flexibility to scale mm-hmm. because you have more flexibility to do so. Right. Is that one of the prime reasons you're going down this path, Matt? would love to kind of hear, uh, provide some value to the listeners and really listen and hear like, what are your thoughts? Like, why are you pursuing a fund yourself? What, what was kind of your, uh, launching path for deciding to go down that path?
1: Um, the simplest answer is because i had a guy tell me he had six hundred thousand dollars he wants to invest with me (laughs) and he doesn't and he doesn't want to deal with the day-to-day stuff he wants to be passive Mm. um and then a week later after i met him he's like i was on phone with a friend of his and he said and and my pitch deck if anybody sees a pitch deck i ever used it was terrible and i had no idea (laughs) it was doing i've never raised you know capital before it was just hey this is what i'm doing um I had the conversation, and I got two hundred grand, and if it goes well, I could easily double that. So I'm like, oh wow, I'm staring down the barrel of I have a million dollars of investor capital, mm-hmm. people who want to invest with me, but they want to be passive. They don't want to be actively involved in day to day management, and I, I don't know these guys, these gentlemen, very very well. Um, my previous partners and my previous real estate deals and every business that I've ever done has been people I have kind of an ongoing relationship with. And mm-hmm. they are actually all right. So you're you're gonna do this part. I'll do this. You do this. Like the roles were defined. We were all gonna be involved in the business. So taking passive investor capital was very different. And they wanted the upside. The whole conversation started because I was telling him about how I've raised hard money loans and all this stuff like that. He's like, well, that's expensive money. Would you be open to, um, you know, profit sharing and your in your deals? Like, yeah, absolutely. And that turned in, that kind of then morphed into, well, hey, I want to be an equity investor with you. And it's like, okay. That's a different story. You know, if you're just gonna write me a loan, that's pretty simple. You can go talk to any real estate attorney, you just get a note and a deed of trust on the property, and there you go, you know, you could raise capital that way. But because these guys wanted these gentlemen wanted to kind of participate in the upside and kind of, you know, really make some money together, it was like, Well, I need to make sure I'm doing this correctly. So I invested, mm-hmm. you know, a ton of money into learning basically how to start a fund. And, you know, that's I don't recommend it for everybody. I mean, it just it has to you. You got to look at your situation and and look with what you want to do with your life. You know, I'm I'm 29. You know, I'm I'm a younger guy. I'm a business builder by by nature. So you know, to me, this is the ultimate form of entrepreneurship, and this is what I you know actually want to do for the long haul. But if you're like, look, I just want to own a couple properties. I want my life to be. I don't have. I'm going to have to do with attorneys, Mm. legal compliance. I have there are things I have to say and can't say. Um, Like I can't say, oh, we're you're going to get. I have to say we're projecting. Like there's there's so much regulation around funds because it's like it's people have lost a lot of money yeah. that it, it is not for the faint of heart. I'll say that. So if you're just getting started. Is a you have time a some, you. Oh, sorry. This go is a
0: perfect time for some disclaimers right here. This
1: is not investment yeah. legal yeah, financial legal advice. advice. Investment advice. You know. Yeah. This, this your is not about, like do i do one llc or do i do multiple it's like there's, there's everything is it's there's pros there's trade-offs to everything um, yep and, and this is friends. all this
0: information is like purely for information and entertainment uses only this is not yes. a solicitation for funds or investments or nope. construed in that sense of any kind so matt sorry for interrupting you, but you know, i no, figured that totally was a funny. good time to go through that
1: <laughs> you're right hey you know for the listeners out there this is my third podcast i've ever been on so you know i appreciate ken for having me on I'm not used to like disclaiming that up front. Like me, Kevin, he's always like, or Graham Stephens, always like, Oh, Hey, this is not investment advice. And then goes into things. So I'll learn. I appreciate Ken. Thank you for the reminder. Um, The attorneys out there, please don't, don't send me bro.
0: Uh, (laughs) Uh,
1: But yeah, I mean, that's really what it is. Like if you're not sure about, you should do one LLC or multiple ask an attorney, ask an insurance agent and like get it. My favorite saying is diversity in counsel and unity in command. You know, it's like, so, an in, I listened to an insurance agent talk about this too, where he's like, "Get one one LLC, and you should get a blanket policy, and you're fine." You know, so he has a different perspective than a, 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 an attorney would be, where he's like, "No, you only want like one to three or five uh, properties per LLC." So, I don't know is the answer. You know, talk to people in your circle, talk to your advisors, and then make the best decision for what you think is right for you. You know,
0: um, absolutely. And yeah. Matt, maybe this. Thank you for explaining that your thought process behind why fund is so advantageous right for real estate investing i'm curious like when you went Standard. into right when you scaled uh your company scaled from like 900 1500 doors you you we talked a little bit about before the call where hey at some point you actually said hey let's pause let's get our stuff together and mm-hmm. get all of our stuff in order so that we can scale even better can you help share that story with folks like what, what was going on at the time when you guys were growing so much and what sort of issues were you guys running into
1: Yeah. So, um, and this was not an easy decision too. like, it took about three or four months of us just, I, I, for lack of a better word, honestly pleading with the fund managers of just, please stop buying houses. You know, they just, they kept buying. So to, to explain a little bit of the context. So funds, again, one of the reasons why funds are, are not the best reason for everybody is once you take the capital, you now have a ticking time bomb or not taking mm-hmm. a clock is now running against you. The second you take that money, you are, you now have to deploy that because you know, I'm trying to make this really generous without making this a thing all that fun. So like there's a couple of different reasons why, but basically as soon as you take that money, you have to either deploy it as rapidly as possible. Or if you do take it actually into your bank account, you know, you're going to owe fees on that money and you're owe a return on that investor money, whether you do did, did anything with it or not. Mm-hmm. So, they were under a very unique set of circumstances where they have to be buying houses, have to be getting that money out into real estate, acquiring assets, getting things fixed up, getting rent coming in. You know, they have to move very, very fast. And that's one of the reasons why I talk about or I say it's not for everybody. Like it is a very mm. high pressure thing, you know? And then plus also you're dealing with people's money. Like they were going after as well, institutional money. So that's pension funds, that's teachers union, that's, that's insurance companies. That's like, this is people's retirement you're dealing with, you know, and that is a whole different level of pressure and stress and, and an entirely different world. So he was under a tremendous amount of pressure. and I think it's very important to, to open this because it's like you have to see it from his perspective before we can get into why it was so difficult because uh, everything always has two sides. So he was under a tremendous amount of pressure to, you know, he had your average. you could be somebody who's listening to this. You know, whether you knew it or not, your grandma or your mom or your friend's retirement may have been reliant on this guy performing and this guy buying houses in a timely fashion. So anyway, um, so basically it took us several months because let's say it's June 4th right now. Okay, let's say he bought 100 houses on May 1st. There are varying conditions and let's say, you know, 80 of them needed rehab and we were only to get 50 of them done in the month of May. Well, it's now June 1st. Austin, here you go. Here's another hundred, here's another here's another hundred houses. I know you still have thirty houses you haven't finished renovating and aren't tenanted and aren't ready, but you got another hundred. So now we're starting going to June with 130 houses. And Let's say a hundred of them need rehab, and then we're only to get again now we're only able to get able to get fifty of them done. Now we're going into July with 60 houses needing renovation and another hundred on top of that. So it just it basically it dug us such a hole that it was really really hard to get out of, and as well. The other challenge we were going through really too is that, so at first, you know, as he was the fund manager, he was doing a very prudent thing where he had a couple of different property managers. He had like three, he started out with, I came on, he was basically in the transition of of cutting it down to two. And then, you know, six months later, he basically, then at the end of it, we were the only property manager. So we were basically getting properties from other property management companies who, who weren't doing their job for, or probably were drowning just as much as we were were having trouble keeping up with it all. So we were getting all of their properties. He was buying more properties on top of that. And then, you know, just a normal turnover of properties. So it was just a, a tsunami of <laughs> looking back. It's like, holy moly, um, man, this was a lot anyway. Um, so, yeah, it was just, wow. it was a very it was basically that it was just we were getting more properties than we could possibly fix up. And we were working with probably a dozen different contractors, you know, a very things
0: And Matt, I'm going to let you keep going, but I'm going to pause really quick just so the listeners are following us because you said a really good point earlier about there are pros and cons to everything, right? Every sort of strategy. And with being a fund manager, what you were talking about, sometimes like one example so the listeners can resonate a little bit is like there's something called a preferred return. And in a preferred Mm -hmm. return situation that means those returns get paid out to your investors. Usually you offer that as a fund manager because you want to entice people to invest. You're like, oh, I get some upside first before we do it like any sort of splits. Yeah. So let's just say there's a 12% preferred return, which means when the moment someone gives you money, you are owing them 1% every single month, assuming it's a 12% preferred return, 12 divided right. by 12 months. So that's why Matt was talking about how the fund managers under tremendous pressure to add, deploy this capital as fast as possible because that ticking time bomb, that's basically you are owing 1% of this money regardless of whatever you do with it. So if you let it sit in the bank account, you are going to lose 1% on that money before you mm-hmm. even did anything with it if you didn't do anything with it within that one month. And yep. as Matt talked about, if you have a couple of months to renovate properties and get things up and running, like that preferred return accrues. Like you don't mm-hmm. just get like, oh, this is going to wait until we get a property up. As soon as it comes to your bank account, it starts accruing. So I just wanted. Pause there and just make sure, like the listeners were following uh, what you were saying there, Matt. And- oh yeah,
1: actually, if you don't mind, I'd actually like to pull in the story a little bit because that's only actually half the story. Mm, so yeah, so what Ken is what Ken is talking about is absolutely correct, and and the way the way I explain it in my in my in my pitch is like, look, we understand when we go when I go to an investor, I say, look, I understand you can put your money in the stock market. Yeah, there's volatility, but if you look over a long enough time horizon, 40, 50 years, you're going to see about seven to ten percent return on your money. So, and it's liquid. You can always point money out, et cetera, et cetera. So I say, look, in understanding that competence, in understanding for that risk, we're going to give you the first eight, 10, 11, 12%, every fund manager is different. That's what the great thing about funds is you can make it whatever you want. Um, so that first eight to 12% we get is going to you, the investor. And that's, and so Ken was actually said is absolutely correct, but it's actually, that's only half the coin. The other half is you know, in those months, me as the fund manager, I'm hiring, I got to pay myself. I have insurance. I have, you know, various softwares. I have employees. I got to manage. I have tons of other expenses. I'm not making any money on because it's like the first 12% the fund makes goes back to the investors before I see a cent. Now, Mm -hmm. some people, some funds will do a 2% management fee, but you know, again, it's like, it, that is not necessarily enough to cover all the expenses that go with making a fund. So it's like for the business owners out there, imagine all of the expenses you have today. Plus now you have to pay tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees just to get the business started. Because again, mm-hmm. this is a very compliance heavy thing. Now you have required financial audits. You have extra legal expenses. Again, everything you're doing has to be done legally. So you have additional overhead that you're not even getting. You're paying for all of that before you make a sense. So you have to like, so if a normal business has to get a 12% return before they actually start profitable, a fund has to get like a 15 to 20% return before they actually start getting anything. And then of that return that's above the prep, you only get a slice of that. Most Mm -hmm. common funds are going to be an 80-20 split. So it's like, even once we clear that first 12%, everything above that, 80% of that money is then going back to the investors. Because again, it's their capital risk. It's like they need to see, they need to be compensated for the risk they're taking. So the, the numbers for fund managers can be extremely burdens can be extremely stressful. And that's why I don't recommend it for everybody. Um, it is, and it's, it's like entrepreneurship, but like, you know, on steroids for lack of a better word. So anyway, there's a,
0: there's a barrier to entry, right? For sure. And, and I think with that responsibility, you got to make sure you have all infrastructure in place. So let's, let's talk about that, Matt. Let's talk about, so you guys, you just gave an example of like hey you have this entire backlog now of properties that one the fund manager is buying a lot but you guys aren't able to turn them around and renovate them and get them set up fast enough Mm -hmm. at what point did you guys say like whoa this is way too much is too much of a, too much of a backlog tell us what was going on during that situation
1: um it's also been a couple years so i'm gonna do my best to recall and i kind of stepped into the middle of it too where um it was was already kind of going on so um I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to like make this as general as possible because I mean some people out there I mean this the other thing is too I want to, I want to remind the listeners I think Kim made a good point in this too when we were talking in the pre-show is this is not just property management this is not just real estate this is any company out there like you can scale too quickly and you know it is a real problem, whether it be tech or cleaning or anything any business out there can grow too fast. so um I think the easiest thing is, is when, um, you know, m- mistakes happen, you know, projects, I mean, it, anything that happens, like, there's always going to be delays. You know, the saying goes, like, if some, if somebody gives you an estimate, add 20% to it for the time, yes. train, you know, because something's going to come up. So I yes. think probably the easiest and the fastest warning signs is if every single project is getting behind. And, you know, if you think renovation is going to take this long and then, okay, we're going to get, or for us, for example, we were expecting to get, 30 doors done and rented this month or 50 doors done and rented this month. And we only got 10 or 20, you know, stuff like that. It's like, look for the small things where every, like every area of your business is, is just feels like it's always behind and nothing is getting done on time. Um, another good example might be, how are you feeling as a business owner? How, and also, so it's combination with how's your team feeling? Like talk to your team, like how are they doing? Are they struggling? Are they like, man, we're really struggling to keep up with all of this. Um, And then also how, how on a percentage basis, how quickly is your company growing? Like, are you doubling every single year or are you growing? Like if your average has been, you know, let's say you're a small company and you're able to grow 50% per year and then something happens to where now you're growing 200% that year, you know, there's going to be some challenges. And, you know, so just like kind of look at your previous history of like how able, able, quickly were you able to, uh, to grow and, um, and then just really talk to your team. Yeah. And I, and I,
0: and I love that, Matt, because I think the analogy I would use is like, hey, it doesn't matter how... It's like, hey, if you have a really, really skinny pipe and you try to put all this water pressure through it,
1: the pipe mm-hmm. is going to burst.
0: Yes. And if you love didn't it. create a pipe that's wide enough to take in all the extra volume of projects and everything, you're not setting yourself up for success and you're just going to cause everyone to be bur- like bursting at the seams. Like yes. No one's going to be really happy to be in those situations. And I think, Matt, I think that's what... Uh, really cool to hear about your experience because I think so many times our listeners like we start in single family mm-hmm. and we like, Hey, do one at a time, one at a time, one at a time, but boom, what do you get so much capital that you can buy a hundred at a time? But did you really have your crews all set? Did you have your property management systems in place to actually take on that amount of volume? And sometimes right. most people is, is no, like you don't recognize you need that stuff in place until the projects kind of hit. <laughs> and
1: even. So, if for me, for example, even if, so, now it's I'm in a different position to where I'm now being the fund manager. But you know, if you're as you as the investor, are do your contractors, does your, does your team, does your vendor team, are they ready for that volume? You know, for contractors, for example, so we were working with contractors who were literally just a one man show. You know, shout out to Mike, he's a, he's a great dude. He's a handyman, he's essentially a handyman. I mean, he was phenomenal wow. work, but he was one guy. You know, and we were all the way up to, you know, Tyler now, who's my partner and my he's my go-to contractor. He had five crews he was running. Wow. You know, so like if you had a whole team of just mics, if you're you used to just being one or two at a time, you know, let's say your property manager was used to you onboarding one or two properties a year. Your contractors were used to doing, you know, one or two houses at a time, kind of, let's say a paint and carpets. And suddenly you get into, hey, I'm buying 10 houses a month and these are total gut jobs down to the studs. You, are your contract? are your vendor, you, even even if you personally are ready, is your vendor team, are they ready? Is your property management company now ready to start taking on 10 houses a month? Are your contractors, can they double their crew capacity, maintain the same quality of work you're used to? Are they ready? You know, so that's what I'm saying, like, you got to talk to your team. It's not only just your, your W-2 employees that you hired, it's also the people around you. Are they ready to grow with you? And I think the reason I, I speak to this is this is why I say, like, I'm not a VC. I'm not, I didn't go to Y Combinator. That, that's an entirely different animal. Like if you go raise tens of millions of dollars in, in equity capital and to do all this as like a tech company, you know, that's an entirely different story. Like you can hire 50 people or 10 people at the get-go. You can you can hire all these people ready to go. But if you're if you're just you know a normal business owner, if you're a boring but profitable business like I was and you're bootstrapping your company, you know, which is like you're not raising a ton of money. You're basically reinvesting your profits. You're growing that way it's an entirely different story and it's a, it's a different perspective and it requires a different mindset. When you approach growth, you can't have the same hockey stick growth that a company backed by a VC can, you know? So it, that's just something to keep in mind.
0: And I think that's so important uh, when you talked about your contractors where, you, you know, that's a good question, Matt. Like how did you spot or how do you vet contractors nowadays? Cause operation is such a big, piece of this right you can't just take in money and snap your finger and everything just magically appears like all renovated how are you vetting your contractors how are you picking your partners what sort of evaluation criteria do you have in place to make sure that you're picking the right people for your team to execute on on your planned, i mean your funds
1: planned right so again i have a really weird way of going about this um so when i was in the working for the property management company thankfully austin and also all, all the team members that we had hired they had years and years of experience with property management companies. So they had already kind of pre-built those relationships with the the contractors. So they kind of knew like, Hey, like, Hey, I'm working for for this company now, come come join us. Or was like, Hey, I've got these guys, they're all good and solid. So I really didn't have to do a lot of vetting um, and put me in kind of a, in a fortune position because again, I I didn't come from a lot of construction management experience. Um, And then now what I'm doing is I basically just said, I picked a really great contractor who's also a GC. His name is Tyler, you know, shout out to Tyler and Great Friends Preservation. I basically, like, hey, man, look, I, I don't want to learn this world. Like I I, <laughs> I make this joke that my way of fixing things growing up was like, hey, Butch, you know, something's broke because my dad, he grew up in the Bronx. He grew up in three the apartments his whole <laughs> life, you know, and so I never learned to be handy. It's just it's not what I'm good at you know Mm -hmm. and stuff like that and i tried you know on on one of my flips project got behind i started meeting tyler out there at seven eight o'clock at night at home Depot and floor and decor and we i tried laying some tile i hated it i was terrible he was like (laughs) he's sitting right there i'm like tyler how do you do this like i'm struggling so hard he's like man i don't get you man like if i lost everything tile was what i get back into like that he's like that was my that is my jam that's like I, i don't know it's just how my brain works so um essentially to answer your question, make a long story less long, how I screen contractors is I went and partnered with the contractor. Mm. And as I make it up, I'm like, hey, if you want to be a, want to be one of our team, go talk to Tyler. Like, he's just gonna run that whole. He's gonna run that. You know, he's just he knows he can talk to a contractor and be like, All right, um that pecs or what's the difference between pecs or something? I don't, I don't even know how to ask the questions to screen the contractors. So I'm just I'm not even gonna try to ask, like, this is what <laughs> an example question what Tyler would ask somebody because like all the contractors out there are going to be like, dude, this guy has no idea what he's doing. What did he just say? <laughs> this could be so, again, but Matt, I think can... that's
0: so cool, though. I think that's, that's exactly why you have to build a team. And I think for everyone, I remember when I started in real estate, and I, I thought to myself, mm-hmm. like, man, I really don't, I'm not the handiest guy. I, I can probably plunge a toilet, but that's pretty yeah. much it, man. Like, I don't really want to go out there and vet these contractors and stay on top of them and say, hey, why are you why are you drywalling this way or why are you putting mm-hmm. a water heater here and there that's not my jam either but i think that's yeah. why you got to work with some people that's like hey someone out there loves that part and yeah. it's hard to find those people because i mean it's a really big world and you don't know where to start sometimes but you have to start and you got to ask around go to your meetups and meet other people but you got to bring something to the table and i think matt you have been able to to show that you can raise capital right you're just yeah. gonna raise like 600 grand for one person 200 grand for another person boom boom boom
1: like I that's also a life, scale 100 grand. yeah absolutely yeah. so like that's what i'm good at yeah Just and
0: me. for some people they'll be like they will cringe at the fact like oh i i don't want to go to any conferences i don't want to go into a room oh. 100 people and shake all those hands like some that would make some people cringe right but oh, you're yeah or, or to do that. It. yeah you very exhausted i get networked out sometimes when i go to some of these conferences man oh, there's awesome. a lot of people <laughs>
1: I, I so yeah, Kent, I think you're you're hundred percent spot on. So I interrupt, but no, it, it guys, listen to Kent, Exactly what he just said. You know, you have to look inward. You have to look at yourself, and also look at your experience. Like like he was just saying, you know, even even if you enjoy, even if I enjoy being a contractor, I it, I've done it probably three days, maybe in the total time I've done fixing things. If You add up all the time I've ever fixed things in my entire life, I probably spent three days cumulatively. Con- mm. Tyler, Tyler, my partner. He's been a contractor his whole life. All his family is contractor. His dad is a contractor. He said his brother owns a framing company. His cousin owns a concrete company. Like his entire network and sphere of influence are all contractors. You know, I'm not. I I, I could learn and be okay at it, but like it's just not what I specialize in. But like you. It's it's funny. My girlfriend Amanda is always like, "Man, I'm exhausted listening to you on the phone all day." <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm loving. It. I'm an extrovert. Like, I am super energized by getting by talking to people. So, I think one of the, I guess one of the, again one of the nuggets for the re- listeners out there: go take the Big Five personality test. See where you are. See first off, see where you lie on the extroversion introversion scale. You know, and a really good list, tip for that is like, when you go to a meetup, let's say it on a random Tuesday or Wednesday. Go to a meetup. It'll be in the evenings. You're going to be a little tired from work. And when you leave that meeting, on the drive home, notice how do you feel? Are you, like, are you energized? Are you super wired up? Because like, oh, I just talked to like 10 people and I spent a couple hours socializing. I'm just like, oh, this is so great. I wonder who wants to go to get some drinks now because it's like 10 o'clock at night on a Tuesday. And I'm like, I don't want to go to sleep because I'm so excited from talking to people. Or you're like, oh, my God please just get me home. I'm so freaking exhausted. Why did I have to talk to so many people? I just want to go home and read a book or watch Netflix and just shut the world out. You know, that is a super, that's a really, that's the easiest barometer for are you ext- introverted or extroverted? And even if you're introverted like, you're just like, if you're the latter where like, I just want to go home and hide from people, you can, you can be outgoing because that's another big thing I see people keep getting confused. It's like, yeah but i i can talk to people it's like yeah that's fine i get you can you can even if you're introverted you can learn to be outgoing. you can learn to be bubbly when you're there in person but if you leave that experience like you said with, with a conference if you leave that conference drained and exhausted from talking to so many people go find an extrovert go find some weirdo like me who's going to love talking to 100 different people and just talk all day long every day you know yeah, sorry i, mean, I mean, didn't I, I, I think that, no, that so that's me though
0: That is so perfect because I have finally given myself permission to stop working on my weaknesses. Right. I think that's sometimes like where, where people, I I think when I was interviewing corporate America, people always ask me like, Hey, what, what, what are your weaknesses? And it's like such a politically correct answer that always comes. I was like, you're inviting, you're asking the wrong questions. I Mm -hmm. would much rather prefer, okay, what's your weakness? What are you not good at? Cool. Do I have someone in mind that can plug that weakness for the entire team so that everyone stays focused on Bingo. what gives them energy and that's how you get a team of a players at all of their own positions right it's just like Bingo. playing baseball not everyone's going to be a catcher now everyone's going to be a pitcher now everyone's going to be the best hitter but yeah. if everybody is you're getting a players at every single position that's how you create a championship team so oh, i so absolutely i absolutely love that and matt maybe this is a good time for us to like you, so your your background is like just incredible man you've done so many different things. That's and a nugget property a little manager little company.
1: Um, listeners go back and listen to that what what kent just said drill that into your head because that is a hundred what kent just said is a hundred percent right like figure out what you're good at and go get partners who are good at what you're weak at and make sure what you're good at is where they're weak at you know correct listen to that clip from kent clip you need to like sound about that and put that on tiktok and everything (laughs) because that's fantastic
0: anyway no i love that my background. Yeah, Matt. Well, I'm trying to understand like, Hey, what kind of mistakes have you made in your investment journey? Because I think this is where, this is like where people get the millions and millions of dollars of value from. It's like, Hey, Mm -hmm. if I have learned from Matt's mistakes, wherever that is um, in your investment, journey, like, why did your punches go, go, go south or sideways? Or what type of issues have you faced when, when you were part of a scaling operation? I think the listeners would just be interested in hearing like, Hey, what mistakes have you made and what would you give them in terms of tactical advice that they can implement to avoid those mistakes?
1: How much time do we have?
0: Oh dude, we got 30 <laughs> minutes at the minimum.
1: I can um, say on for you, man. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean like I, for me at least like I am, I love things like you know uh, Lex Friedman, Joe Rogan. I love guys like that where like it's it's long podcasts because they can really go down the rabbit hole. In I'm also just I, I come across also for the listeners out there if you're listening to any of the podcasts. Um, I'm sorry if I come across as very verbose. Um, I, I don't mean to it. Just like especially like especially for something like this where like if somebody's kind of newer in the industry and they want to understand what or I, I don't want to say hey this is what I'm doing. I want people to say okay this is what I'm doing. And like, here's why I do what I'm doing. Mm. Here's the, here's the, it's, it's, I'm explaining the way, why I think about the way I, the things I think about, because I, I'm always looking for like what Kent was just saying. Like, I'm looking for either good nuggets to pull out or I'm look, honestly looking for Kent to just be like, Matt, you're, you're a complete idiot. Here's why you're, you're, you said these like five points are wrong on point two, three, and four, you know? I, so that's, if I come across as verbose, when you meet me in person, you talk with me ever, that's just the way I operate. Um, I'm not a long, I'm not a short winded person, and I'm not surface-level. So I just, I love comp- things like this because this is where now we're getting to the real meat. If I just yes. said, oh, you know, if I just said something like, so here's my first easiest mistake: I paid a contractor before we actually officially owned the property. That's a big no-no. You know, yeah, got it. Yeah.
0: So wow. obviously that's a taken
1: one. Now luck, now luckily it worked out, Be- but oh. yeah, everything was fine, but. So the reason I did that is because I was in a position where I was really struggling and I, just, I had to get a property done. I, I I wanted to get these flips going. I was so eager. I was so excited and just so like, I got to start making some money in real estate. I've been wanting to do this for so long. I got to get this flip going. You know, oh, this is a title issue. It'll get fixed next week. It's not a big deal, you know. And also the contractor and the, the seller came to me preferred by somebody who was close to me. Actually, my boss. she was my boss at the time. Um, so I was working for the management consulting company and you know, so that's a big no-no so if I just said, oh, don't go pay a contract beforehand, it's like, yeah, people who were who are, who are where I was, who are so excited alright, this is my second deal, like I'm invincible, I'm brand new at this I can do no wrong, I'm excited to finally be in this situation, I'm excited, the excitement of like, I'm under contract, i buying this property you know, if, if I don't go into that, explain the, the why I did what I did, you know then people are just like, oh, they're going to brush me off. Like, yeah, but but I know it didn't work. He said not to do it, but I'm different, you know, because I do it all the time, <laughs> you know? You hear advice and like, that's what, that's what that person said, but here's why I'm different because I'm I'm this or I'm that. So anyway.
0: Um, I love that. So You're like, that. this doesn't apply. People will say that all the time. Like, oh, this doesn't apply to me. But I think what you said right there is so important where people get really emotional about the first mm-hmm. deal. I can't tell you how many times like, hey, we have, Imposter syndrome, we have comparison issues. Like sometimes oh you're God. in these Facebook groups and you're comparing, like, oh wow, this person got their first deal in a week. Like, why am I not there? And you start beating yourself down. And then then you start compounding those mistakes because you are so eager to get that deal that you might accidentally, I don't know, fudge a number here or there on a spreadsheet to make the numbers work. And that is mm-hmm. a really, really, really bad idea because I see so many people buying deals now and I'm running the numbers on my own. I was like, that doesn't seem realistic. Like, how yeah. are you projecting that? For renovations how are you protecting that for revenue when the right. comps don't support it i don't get it but i understand probably the psychology behind what happened was they got really excited about just wanting to post that they got a deal mm-hmm. instead of actually realizing where or not that was a deal so that's yeah. a great point there matt i love that you brought up that story
1: yeah and so i mean that's the easiest the biggest one and to kind of pull on that one of the easiest ways to solve that it's more it's like um so when I dropped, when I dropped out of college or anything, I basically put myself down a sales career. Cause I'm like, Hey, I dropped out. I'm, I'm 19 years or 18, 19 years old. I can't remember, I, I dropped out of college three times. Like, all right, clearly I'm not gonna be able, to, how am I going to be able to make money if I'm a college trap So I went down the sales career and that's how I put, got into art dealing and broker and all those other fun stuff. And so one of the, one of my favorite sales trainers out there, um, UK's most hated sales trainer, by the way. Um, Absolutely fantastic guy. One of the things he says is like, salespeople get emotionally tied to a, a deal when they don't want a prospect, when they don't have a very full pipeline. Uh, so I got emotionally tied to the property because I didn't have five other properties I could look at. I didn't have uh, relationships with like con- with wholesalers and real estate agents, and you know, doing my own thing. I didn't have a ton of other because I was new. You know, this was the second property that we're gonna buy and i was just so excited you know i didn't have i wasn't looking at 30 properties like so now again this is also a good time to give a shout out to stephanie stephanie singer you know who is now gonna be coming on for our head of acquisitions for the fund you know she's been doing this for so long she'll look at 30 50 deals and say all right these matt these are the two or three four maybe five that we're gonna buy you know she has that emotional discipline because she has so many so for the listeners out there who are wanting to justify who are doing what what Ken, what Ken is just saying where it's like I'm getting excited I'm gonna, I'm gonna make I'm gonna massage the numbers um, you know for the for the diplomat and me we're gonna massage the numbers to make this work or we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna project everything to be very um, very aggressive you know we're, we're not going to budget or playing conservatively you know that might be one of the reasons why So if you find your for the so the the nugget for the listeners out there, this is this is what this is essentially what I'm trying to say. If you're find yourself getting emotionally attached to an outcome, whether it be a sale you're making in your business, or whether it be a client you have right now, or a property you're looking at, you know whatever it is, it's probably because you don't have enough other alternatives out there.
0: Wow, that is far like the best gem I've heard about how to control your emotions, man. That just makes so much sense because if you don't have leads, you don't have a business, guys. Mm-hmm. And this is the perfect way to explain it. Of sometimes, like when you like, I met plenty of wholesalers, and sometimes I hear about a lot of people stop starting and stopping wholesaling because they get a lead and then try to follow up on that lead and they try to close on a lead. But then once they're trying to close on a lead, they forget to keep the pipeline going for generating more leads to build put them into the pipeline mm-hmm. and when you don't have a conveyor belt set up like a like you mentioned you have an acquisitions person genius mm-hmm. because now you can have someone solely focused on that part of looking at deals and then you can have more people fo- solely focused on turning these properties around and now everybody again can play their positions and get you the best outcome for the fun as a whole and that's what it really takes to kind of scale this so great great points exactly. there matt absolutely and gonna,
1: that. so and that frees me up to have to suffer all the brain damage to deal with all the legal and the compliance and stuff like that so again like those. So, again it's just shout out to Stephanie. like that's what i'm saying like i could go learn to how to have vet deals and how to screen and do due diligence and all that stuff like that and look at crime data and look at neighborhood statistics and all this stuff like that and i could probably learn I could probably be halfway decent at it but why would i want to when stephanie's been doing this whole career and she's like i've been a realtor for i don't know how long and she's like, I have found my specialty. My niche is I'm a great acquisition specialist for funds. Like, so she has helped her. She's helped um, in 2021, she helped buy about 104 doors, buy, acquire, and also kind of coordinate the rehabs. And in 2022 wow. was 174 doors. And I was talking to her about it. And she's like, the 90 of those doors or 100 of those 174 doors happened in the first 90 days. And again, that phone was pretty smart. So I said, Whoa, slow down, slow down. Let's get caught up. So deal flow <laughs> is not her issue, her problem. And so she just knows how to vet them so quickly. So, you know, especially and for the wholesalers out there, if you got questions or, you know, I've actually got some different lending programs I'm actually working for with lenders mm-hmm. on. If you got questions, you know, reach out to me and Kent. We could probably talk to you and, and help you in some capacity. But if you're a wholesaler, is a great way to get started, you know. And so if you're struggling, like what Kent just said, if you're like, I'm so attached to this homeowner, you know, go prospect. Go find more homeowners. Always be talking to more and more homeowners. You know, no matter what. You yeah, do. and
0: I and I love this part because someone has to deal with other lawyers, like the SEC attorneys and audit that stuff, the accountants and everything. There's a job they for sure everybody. To get on
1: time. Yeah, it's very it's like important. Cool. You got to communicate
0: to your investors, right? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. and not only communicate to your investors, but you also got to show them how you're doing. Like, you know, Ken, if you gave me 100 grand, and let's say this was in in May. In the next couple days you're you're expecting some kind of report from me saying all right how how are we doing how many houses did you buy what, what's our vacancy rate like just you know it's a quick simple simple update you know I've talked I've talked to I've networked a lot of different fund managers and I've talked to some who said like look I, you even me as a fund manager I've, I've become an I've invested in other private funds and there's one fund he invested in and he didn't get his January report until June. So he had to wait six months just to know how one month happened. So that's that's a key component of this too and and this, this is also applicable even if you're even if you're not starting a fund. I do this with my lenders too. Like my, my, my lenders, I'll text them, hey, this is how here's some pictures, how things are going. Hey, we're about two weeks out from wrapping up. Hey, actually, just kidding, we're, we're adding a fourth bedroom now. You know, I'm keeping my lenders, even if they're not like technically investors with me, I'm keeping them in the loop. I'm making sure they know how their, their product is doing. So if you're just getting started and you're gonna find a friend who's gonna, you know, just do a private money loan for you. So you're giving them a note in a deed of trust and it's just like, I'm going to pay you 10% a year and you're going to be my 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 lender on this property. Keep them in the loop. Just, you know, doesn't have to be every single day because they don't want to be bogged down with the details. Just send them a photo. You know, when you've got a big red right, kitchens done, send them, send them the photo. You know, just little things like that. People really appreciate communication.
0: Oh man. I love that. And so Matt, I want to bring this conversation now to the affordable housing side because I, yes. I want to understand like you, you ran such a big portfolio of affordable housing, and you talked about sometimes you guys, ha- the, the fund, bought some properties in like less than ideal neighborhoods. I'm curious to understand mm-hmm. from you, one, what makes affordable housing investors successful? Because I think that's going to be really important because sometimes we just mm-hmm. hear about the stigma of like, hey, affordable housing, just all low incomes, the like guns, drugs, and drama. I'm trying to overcome that stigma. And I'm really mm-hmm. trying to understand like, hey, what, what did you guys see success investing in affordable housing? What were the pros and cons sort of associated with affordable housing for you guys?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I have, a again, a bit, bit unique perspective on this because the fund, they were only Section 8. Like, that's it. They, every single house they bought, they only wanted to put it on the Section 8 program, and so for the newer listeners out there, it's also sometimes known as the voucher program, uh, or it's the government guaranteed rent um, for a good majority of it. I've seen some tenants who literally their their monthly payment for the rent for like a 12, 1300 month place is ten dollars, is twenty dollars. So pretty good, and you know these people they need a, they need a, and they need a good quality place to live. And so um, first and foremost, if you're going down this route. Please, please, please have the attitude of I you don't want anybody to be able to know the difference between whether it's a voucher Section 8 affordable property or a market property. Don't be a slumlord. I'm just going to put that out of the first. Love that. Um, you know, because that, that was again, that was the fund manager's goal. He's like, I don't want people to know the difference. I don't want, I want people to, I want people to go to a neighborhood and not know. And to say, oh, that's that's the that's the Section 8 house because that's the first problem It's like they get such a stigma. That's how these things end up. And I don't know how and why, because, you know, at least from my perspective, um, you know, Section 8 inspectors are usually really good about pointing stuff out. And, um, you know, so anyway, so what makes them uh, successful? Um, Well, I think, first off, don't be a slumlord. (laughs) That's a good way. You know, because, I mean, honestly, like, I kind of say it tongue in cheek, but I'm also like mostly serious because like almost any city has a huge backlog of of people waiting of people who have i've been approved for a section 8 voucher i'm waiting for a house to open up you know so if you can find if you're able to deal with the bureaucracy which some of it is but some of it is also because they're trying to keep the house safe and you know um i mean you'll you'll never have a problem finding tenants you know so that's one of the things um one of the other kind of tactical things um it's you, you got to think about this really uh, so for us personally we found that not including utilities in the rent is is a key thing you know and now if you have rain collectors and solar panels and things like that maybe it'll offer you know have you include utilities because it does give you a nice little bump in rent but for us at least you know we wanted to make sure that the, the tenants were or the our residents sorry was responsible they had some, some skin in the game so we said hey we, we, we will work with voucher programs we'll cover the rent And the utilities is on the individual resident. Otherwise, you know, the easy example we give is like, if your toilet's leaking, your sink is leaking, but you're not paying the water bill, who cares? You're just going to let it go for six months because it's no skin on your, it's no, you know, nothing to you. Like you're not paying the bill. So, (laughs) you know, and also it helps also, you know, teach people also good financial management because the hope is they're going to move up into the world. So lots of different reasons why, but that was one of the tactics we learned. Don't pay for utilities. Um, Of course, there's exceptions. Um, Let's see. Um, download the forms. Uh, a lot of the next thing I would think would make people, at least if you're going in a Section 8 world, because that's what I'm going to speak to, because that's the affordable housing space I know and understand. Um, get familiar with what the standards are ahead of time, because uh, a lot of this stuff is public information, like uh, HUD, um, the, housing Urban, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, which is kind of the federal program that regulates all this. They make these forms available about all the things that they're going to specify that this is what needs to happen to pass an inspection. Now, some of it can be really kind of, I'm going to say silly. I'm just, it just kind of is what it is. Um, so like on an example, we have a toilet and you, if, if for listeners out there, imagine you're looking at your toilet right now, hopefully it's clean. Um, <laughs> and the screws that keep it in screwed into the floor, then you know, there's a little cap on there. So if you, uh, if you guys have cats, I'm sure they're always knocking it off and, and playing with it. But if that cap's not there, they can, they can fail an inspection for you because it has every single safety item has to pass the inspection before they allow a tenant to move in. Now that was kind of one of the silly ones. So, and there can be other things is just like making sure there's no, that everywhere there's an outlet cover, you know, and that one, seems like, well, who cares versus like, well, a kid can stick their finger in there and then they're going to electrocute it. So always remember that all the, the section eight standards are because they want to keep the homeowner safe. So just understand that familiarize yourselves with them. And then, if, or if you're like me and you're a complete idiot when it comes to fixing things and you're having contractors, give them the standards and make sure they're familiar with it. Or try to find like guys like my partner, Tyler, who's like, we were basically brought in by other funds to make sure, like, we know, we not only do they know what all these Section 8 standards are and Mm -hmm. they fixed, they were brought in by other funds to make sure that their houses would pass, but he was like, I just fix every single house I touch is fixed to the Section 8 standards, regardless of whether it's going on the program or not. Because again, it's just about it's about safety. You know, they want to make sure nobody's going to get hurt in, in the place. And it can be things like you know making sure your your windows don't have your glasses not have cracks in it. There's outlet covers, the live wires. It, it's pretty simple stuff. So yeah, and you...
0: some of this stuff is like common sense too, right, Matt? It's like, mm-hmm. hey, yeah. It not only are you putting an outlet cover there so a kid doesn't stick your finger in there, but that also helps prevent a lawsuit from you being sued as a landlord. It's actually advantageous from that perspective so i i loved your gems about not including utilities because that's a really good perspective you had there how about uh screening property uh tenants or prospective tenants did you guys have like specific policies and procedures in place that allowed you to weed out uh sort of bad bad apples from the bunch
1: yeah so um you know, I'll give a shout out to my partner, Austin, because he had a really cool perspective on this. Like, obviously, we, we pulled credit reports, background checks, all things like that. Um, you know, we made sure you didn't have a criminal history. I know that there are some programs out there who will work with people who are sex offenders or, or violent people and stuff like that. And I'm really glad they're out there. It just it wasn't for us because, again, we were having to do so many and we didn't have the support systems in place to kind of make sure that things were going right. So first is we want to make sure it was a clean background check. Um, credit report because you know they were the utilities and they did most often it was a couple hundred dollars was what their their uh, tenant portion was what the the copay I guess you could think of it as so we want to make sure that we we're going to be able to collect that on time and in, in the credit report this is kind of a tip for all the property managers out there um, don't be super worried about medical bills there there's a lot of people out there who have really bad credit because they haven't because they got sick or they got injured and went up in the hospital and you know they fell behind on that. So we would basically look for are they paying their car? Are they paying, you know, um, that was a big one because you don't pay your at least again, depends on where you live. For us in the Midwest, if you don't have a car, you're gonna have a hard time getting a job, which is mean you're gonna fall behind and rent and you know, things like that. So we made sure that was in order, made sure like the utilities always were in order, you know, make sure those were always paid on time and um things like that. But if you were behind on a credit card or medical bills, we 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 kind of we we looked at that as like, okay, yeah, that's probably fine. Um we also made sure that they, they weren't in any lawsuits with landlords. You know, it just, again, that was one of the things we looked at, um, where we're mindful of We want to see, okay, is it, oh, no evictions too. You know, that was the big thing. It's no, no evictions on the rec, in our history. Again, I know there's a lot of landlords out there who are people listening to this, like, I want to help those people. And it's, it's fantastic. You know, and I applaud you wanting to do that. I just wasn't in this situation because, again, the volume of homes we were having to do, we couldn't be as accommodating with people with, with unique circumstances as, you know, as ethical as I would have liked to be, you know, but again, you have, you have to find that line for yourself somewhere. And those are the easy ones. So basically, clean commercial history, um, not behind on car rent, um, and making sure all utilities were paid. And then just making sure there's no evictions within, you know, some five to seven years something
0: like that yeah and i and i love this part because matt i think <laughs> you highlighted very well that hey just because it is an affordable housing rental it doesn't mean that you can't set your own standards now that has to be uniformly mm-hmm. applied across all your tenant base or all your applicants base so it's not discriminatory yeah. but you it's up to you to decide what your criteria is because the, the housing authority or section eight is not going to force a tenant upon you you still mm-hmm. have to do the screening of the tenants it's just like running a business right you got to provide a great product but you also mm-hmm. have to qualify your lead so you're not per- earning your time on just people that aren't going to be great customers, right? It's just, right. that's just natural course of business. People sometimes confuse real estate investing with like a hobby, but it's really a business. You got to provide a great product. Like you, what you were saying, Matt, it's like, you got to put out a home that people are going to be proud of to be living there. that's going to give them dignity for like, Hey, this mm-hmm. is my house and I'm really proud of where I live. So that they don't feel less than versus other people. So this is awesome, man. I love the gems that you had, Matt. I'm really interested to hear your perspective. I'm like, hey, on a larger picture perspective, mm-hmm. why do you think affordable housing, uh, particularly the lack of supply of affordable housing, is so hard to solve for? And what would you recommend as like some of the actions that you know this generation can take? Yeah. It's awesome.
1: Uh one thing I also want to kind of pick on, to what Kent was yeah. saying. So um, when for the other business owners out there and we've all heard it don't use the word quality it's such a vague term like what, what the heck does that mean so the things we say again feel free to steal this for your own marketing we want to make sure our houses are safe and that are desirable so those are the two standards we, we fix everything up to um as for the supply issue um i, I think one of the i mean it, it, so it depends on the perspective you're coming at it um if you're let's say you're a developer I think if you're doing the new build, new construction route, I think one of the issues is really, it's just, they're not as profitable. I'm just going to say it and say what it is like, and it's not like a percentage basis. I mean, even if, let's say that, even if, uh, so a lot of the home builders report about a 30% ish gross margin, um, you know, obviously, and I think some are the 10 or 15% net margin. So, um, I'm, I'm, you know, so for the new listeners out there, just in case somebody who's not super familiar, doesn't own a business and doesn't know what a gross margin is, it's like, um, Let's say I, I take this kind of a loanie. All right, let's say this thing cost me three dollars to to produce. I if I have a thirty percent gross margin, I'm basically going to charge four dollars for this. So that's the easiest way of looking at it. Now, if we look at it as a percentage basis, if you're fix, if you're building a brand new house, gonna, you're going to charge one hundred fifty thousand dollars for. You're probably you know somewhere in the 110 ish range of costs. So you're going to probably make about twenty to thirty percent, twenty to thirty thousand dollars of profit. That's pretty sweet. But if you took that same plot of land that, um, probably a little bit more materials and a little bit more time, but you doubled the size and now you're charging, let's say three, $400,000 for that house. Now, I mean, for let's say an extra two or three weeks or maybe an extra month of time and extra, you know, 10 or $20,000 or $50,000 materials and things like that. Now your profit, if, if you're still able to maintain that same 30% profit, now your profit is what 56, uh, 70, 80, 90, or maybe a hundred thousand dollars a profit. So I think that's really one of the bigger reasons. If you're if you're going through the hassle of developing land, you know, if you just go for, if you sell a more expensive product, and this is basis 101, you sell a more expensive product and you maintain the same margin, you're just going to make more money, you know? So that's one, I think, one of the big things. Um, and then I think the other thing is too, it's just, um some of it is inflationary you know i mean the, the, it's, it's such a multifaceted problem it's it's, just, it's hard to single out any one particular thing um and some of it's too you people can just command the kind of rents they can um and let's see um people have this notion that you have to fix up the house with like to be absolutely like the class a tash mahal i think that's part of it is too like I'm going to put in, you know, the, the nicest granite countertops and then spend, you know, $40,000 on, on a renovation and like make the house like absolute primo because that, that's what desirable is. So, you know, finding that happy medium where it's like, does it look nice? And it doesn't have to be imported Italian marble. It could be just, you know, um, quartz or, or, or something else like that from your local, that was finding the local mill. Like, so there, there are corners, I don't want to say... There's, a, there's a, low, a medium standard you can get to, I think is, but again, if you can do the Italian marble and you can do the more expensive of things, you can charge again, a premium, you can make more money, you know, for the same, essentially the same amount of work. Um, so that's part of it. And I uh, think it also can be just, I mean, it, I mean, it depends on how far you want to get in the weeds. I mean, cause we can even go down into like, you know, city planning and zoning, you know, if we want to get that far into things where it's like, I've been a huge fan of like, I've been really listening to a lot of like not just bikes Uh, There's a couple of other urban planning channels where we have like these minimum lot sizes and things like that, where it's like, you know, and also you, you, um, residential neighborhoods, even though I'm mostly a single family guy, you know, most it's, it's in most places in America, it's illegal to build anything other than a single family house. Okay. Well, what if I want to build a duplex? What if I want to build a triplex? What if I want to build a fourplex? So I'm going to give a shout out to, I think it's the Netherlands where this guy's from. You know, they're a lot more flexible. It's like you go down the neighborhood, you'll see some single families, some duplexes, some fourplexes, like it's a lot more mixture of of houses. So they have just more supplies. So I think cutting back regulations to or zoning requirements, but then you have to get into NIMBY, nimbyism um and things like that. And so that's a big problem. Um, I don't know it, it, so it, my point is it's a very multifaceted problem, you know
0: No, seriously. And I think that's why I asked this question to almost every guest that comes on now because, I think everyone brings a slightly different perspective you know that's shaped by their background their experiences their journey and this is why i ask all these questions because like i the metaphor i use for everybody is like hey i think people have told me affordable housing is impossible to solve for but i disagree i think it's just a matter of time when you collect all the pieces to the puzzle and Mm -hmm. even if we don't collect all the pieces in our lifetime we pass those pieces on to the next generation, let them figure out. And right. I think if we can solve some big problems in our lifetime, that's going to make the problem infinitely easier for the next generation to kind of pick that problem up and solve the next tranche of problems. Quote yeah. Unquote. So, so okay,
1: I mean, I don't know. What about you? Like I, I, maybe I'm looking for a nugget here. I'm your listener. What, what do you think is you've probably talked to four more people uh, than I have. So what are your favorite reasons and, and how, what amalgamations of other people's reasons have you now made into your own reasons? For while, yeah, no so I think
0: for me so far, for what I've listened to so far is like, the number one is lack of supply. So not enough incentives for developers to really mm-hmm. take those projects on. And you mentioned that. So I love that mm-hmm. that's a pretty common one that people have brought up. And that's also has to do with the fact that there needs to, I used to have worked at many organizations where people have been incentivized by incentives, for lack of better words, right? It's like, how, how yeah. do you get your sales guys to perform? Yeah. You give them bonuses. You want developers to build more supply, you gotta get the incentives, especially if they're dedicating or setting aside properties for like a set aside requirement where at least like you know a certain amount of units has to be dedicated for people making certain percentages of the average median income. Great. You mentioned zoning the bureaucracy. Like that is a huge part of it because if you make things difficult, people yeah, people aren't people aren't gonna do all the hard work. People are you understand human nature humans are naturally lazy right we everything we do is for the conservation of energy like there's a reason sometimes our brains zone out and we don't do things because our brain is trying to conserve energy that's why when you create habits you are able to not waste energy doing certain items and that's why habit stacking is also really really cool but my point for bringing that up is you have to make things easier you have to make things more incentives and then on top of that you have to get over the stigma. And this is one of the biggest problems that I'm trying to solve right now is like, how do you get that awareness out there right now that most folks in affordable housing are not drug dealers or not gang members. There mm-hmm. are good, hardworking people just like my mom, when she came over from China and she just didn't know English. These are great residents that are oh. there. So if I can just get that stigma over, because I have, Met many people that says like oh affordable housing section eight right oh so they're gonna tear up they're gonna like wreck the place right like or chances are higher of them wrecking mm-hmm. the place and that is not true and i think matt i would eventually love you like share some statistics if you are able to start tracking them on your side as you grow and grow and grow it's like hey what are the percentages to people that trash the place as section eight tenants compared to Market rate tenants, because you need numbers to sort of debunk this myth that people in affordable housing are there to wreck your place. And if we're able to get over that fear first, I think that helps us at least shine a light on the next step of this path of solving affordable housing.
1: Right. Listen to a basic economics course or basic economics class and understand incentives and disincentives and understand how. Predictable that is it makes people they they respond to their incentives and so again, like we listen to that clip again And again, just said that's probably one of the biggest thing That's probably one of the most impactful things that for me at least was understanding incentives under helps you understand human behavior So that is a huge knowledge bomb most people are like oh, yeah, okay, whatever, you know, but that's again, especially for salespeople Um, Secondly the regulation that again that that is so true, you know, so um go anywhere in your neighborhood i can almost guarantee any single person listening to this podcast somewhere in your city you've seen these five over ones these like new apartment buildings that are bottom floor retail and then like three to four five stories of apartments on top of that that all became legal and it's all sudden it seems like it's oh they're suddenly out of nowhere all because literally one line in a right in some international book of regulation about um i'll try to find the video I actually went into it actually what that line is Basically, something along the lines of like they allowed a certain kind of material that like is now uh, fire no longer that is now fire resistant. Like, okay, this is this material in this structure has now been allowed to be it is now fire safe. Okay, so there's really one line in, in zoning code suddenly now making buildings possible and boom, now they're everywhere. I mean the public, that's how I guarantee no matter where you are in the country you are seeing these five over ones because regulations got changed ever so. Far. And the third thing. Um, um, uh, what was it? Oh yeah. The quality of tenants was, um, yeah, I mean, it's exactly what you said. I mean, look, I mean, it, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's not possible that some of these people aren't, you know, drug dealers and, and, you know, violent people, but that happens in market tenants too. You know, it's not like, oh, drug dealers are only in area. It's, it's about the, the more important is about the community. It's about what does the neighborhood allow? And so I got a really, um, I'm actually working with a local nonprofit, gentleman's name is greg uh, i'm not gonna say his last name because i'm not sure he wants me to you know for his email to get blown up but you know to shout out to greg so he used to work for the city and basically what they would do they would do was and so they would go around and take abandoned properties and you know for basically say hey look if you're gonna fix this we're gonna basically we're gonna repossess this property we're gonna sell it off to to back to the community to get it you know because it's a blighted property and so he did this for a long time for the city but he said the problem was it was shotgun method so it'd be like one house here one house over there one house up there and he said basically it didn't do anything so he ended up retiring for the city started this nonprofit, and now he's like all right we picked one neighborhood and we are focused on this entire neighborhood and they've got the whole thing turned around like they've done about 40 or 50 homes in this neighborhood and, he, wow. and he's telling me he's telling me this over lunch one day and that might be the best part this is the part that really got to me this is the part i was like wow this is incredible So he was saying how about a year or so into the project, um, a lot of families started moving to the neighborhood. They had a big soccer field right in them. They put a park in the middle of it. And so a lot of kids were starting to get into like have soccer practice and stuff like that. And he was saying how the coach um, was walking into the field one night and like cars were starting to pull up and he was like, all right, it's going to be soccer. It's going to be game night. And he said the local drug dealers were sitting on the schoolhouse steps kind of just like, Hey coach, what's going on? And he was like, there's about to be soccer practice tonight and, you know, there's going to be hundred or so people here, all kids and families, all bunch around here. So, you know, I don't know what you guys want to do, but there's going to be a lot of people here and they're kind of like, just kind of shrugged and kind of moved on. And they said he never saw them again because the neighborhood started to turn and became more, was more, not even more, not even more, It was just rehab. Like instead of just a bunch of blighted properties all over, people just started moving in there. And then like the cry basically just left the area. I said, okay this is no longer a good place for us to do business anymore because there's gonna too many people and it's improving so we're just going to get out you know that is so and it's still cool, it's all man. that it's still yeah absolutely and these aren't these aren't the, the, these houses didn't get turned into big mansions you know they're all still lower income housing but it, because it's no longer it's now needed to be a safe no longer blighted area you know the problems just kind of went away
0: and I think people undervalue how important community is because yeah. it, it really takes a whole, a whole group of people to it's take a build. stand and say we're gonna make we're gonna make this place better. Yeah. And that part that part is really created by the environment that you put in. Where not you put in nice parks, where not you put in nice homes, where people have dignity and pride. And it's like, hey, if someone sees them taking care of their lawn or the front yard on that other house. Someone will say, like, you know what? Let me go, let me go do my part and improve the community. People under underestimate the impact of the environment and the community that it can have. So, Matt, I love that you just shared all those stories because it really solidifies like why we started this podcast and why this stuff is so important for us to talk about. Because sharing secrets like this and talking about this openly is what's gonna make the difference, man, in this world mm-hmm. and this big problem that we're trying to fight. So, Matt, yeah. I, I know we got to wrap up. But Matt, where can people find out more about you or get in touch with you? Because you have just been full of gems today, man. Um,
1: so reach out to me. My, my, my email, will probably put in the show notes, um, but it'll be matt at emeraldcenturycapital.com. And um, if it's all right, and right with you, I'd like to put together a special little uh, downloadable product for all the listeners out there. Um, it'll probably be like, so if you go on our website, you'll probably find like, hey, we got you know 10 or 20 questions to ask before buying a property. Um, but if you start with you, I'd like to prepare a special report that's more like 100 questions. You know, so you'll yeah. we'll actually get the value for the listeners, people who are just getting started. And I know people are like, oh, my God, 101 questions. That's a lot. So take a breath. It's OK. Some of these are repeatable questions you don't have to ask every single time. I mean, it goes into things you don't think about. Like, is the rent control in the area? Is the neighborhood area, area pet friendly and things like that? So, you know, a lot of I'd say about half of these questions are just more repeat questions. Like once you know the area, you don't have to ask every single time. But again, for newer investors out there who are like me, and like I, I want to get into it, but I don't have a way to, it's a good way to kind of break down that barrier and like, all right, make sure I'm asking all the questions they need to be asking. So um, we'll probably put the like, emeraldcenturycapital.com forward slash, I don't know, affordable housing podcast or maybe forward slash Kent or invest with Kent or something like that because you know, he's, he's the GOAT. Um, or put, I don't know, whatever the link is, it'll be in the show notes. I'll send it over to Kent. That way people have to listen to this. But, you know, send, send me an email. And check out the link in, in the show notes and whether you're brand new or you're wanting to invest millions of dollars with us like you know reach out and I'll, I'll do the best I can to help guide you or, or point you in that direction or tell you which podcast you need to l- listen to by Kent that will help solve your problems so ah oh, dude I love that man hey Matt thank for uh, seriously thank you for what you do seriously without
0: people like you I would not never had the home I had growing up to so seriously sincerely thank you thank you for what you do and I can't wait to hear about your fun, your progress, and hopefully we'll get you guys back on the show at some point, man. This is yeah, gonna that'd be, be really great. Cool. Yeah, and it.
1: thank you for what you're doing. I it's I just want to give a shout to a lot of listeners. Like, not a lot of people are dedicated to this affordable housing space, like specifically. And again, like you know, think again. It's about the incentives that Kent was talking about. If you're building an apartment building, why not just do what people, a bunch of people are doing downtown, where you build these floor to ceiling 14 foot windows, and you can charge three four thousand dollars a month rent for one two bedroom place you know you make more money so you know kent is really doing a public i would say a public service by spreading awareness and trying to help change this stigma so just really honestly thank you for what you're doing kent i really appreciate it thanks man um and people like you are just you know helping spread awareness because i'm only one person and i can only do so much but it takes a community like you said it it takes a village
0: so it does man all right thank you so much guys and matt thank you so much and without further ado we're out bye everybody